invite you, if you would, to remain standing for the reading of God's word. From 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 5 through 15. But as for you, use self-restraint in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness with the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearings. Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens, gone to Galatia. Titus, who Delmartia. Only Luke is with me. Take along Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. But I have sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the overcoat which I left in Troas, and Carpus, and the books, especially the parchment. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself too, for he vigorously opposes our teaching. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, it's good to be with you today, and for those who are joining us online, um, I want to start with one thing. Uh, Danny Ray is for all ages, as you can see by Steve. Even he couldn't figure it out. So young, old, it's for all ages. And another thing, it's you would pay big bucks to see Danny in Vegas or to see him in the Magic Castle in L.A., but the foundation, Mountain View Foundation, is paying for him to be here, so it's free. So, gentlemen, cheap date, okay? Just keep that in mind. <laughs> keep that in mind. I was uh, 14 years old when I ran my first cross-country race. Now, why was I running cross-country? Well, my brother Charlie ran cross-country, my brother Mark ran cross-country, and so thus I was stuck running cross-country. It seemed like a good idea. I mean, running is good. It couldn't be that bad. And, and I, went, I can remember our first practice. We went out to the field and sat in a circle and started stretching. I said, this is good. I can do this. And then the coach stands up and says, okay, we're going to do a three-mile warm-up, then we're going to do eight half-mile intervals, and a two-mile rundown. What? I mean, what had I got myself into? It's just no way. Well, surviving training in the preseason is one thing, but then that brings us to the very first race. Now, it's a preseason invitational, and it's most of the schools in the Sacramento uh, area and the Central Valley. And if you've never been to a cross-country meet, it's kind of like a marathon. You stand there, it's a freshman team race, and there's 180 of us crammed into this line waiting to start. And you're thinking, what? I mean, the thought's going through your head, what am I doing here? Why am I doing, where's the bathroom? I mean, all these important questions, the nerves, the flutters, everything. And then suddenly, on your mark, and the gun sounds, and you're off. In the beginning, it's just chaos, 180 people, and oftentimes you start wide, and they're like, you're going towards some narrow path. It's just chaos. You're running, you're running. But after a while, the race settles in. The pain settles in. The mind games settle in. Why, again, am I doing this? You know, I could just stop. I could, oh, pull the muscle. You know, you, just, you could end the pain. You're just going. But, but then you realize everyone else is running, and, and you see your teammates, and, and they're running. And so you keep going and keep going, and suddenly you're near the end, and it's like, kick it and just go, and you're, and you're passing some people, and this is amazing. You go through, and you cross the finish line, and you realize you've survived. You've made it. 
And, you know, this was a team meet, and, and this particular one, the Real End Invitational, our freshman team took third, which meant you got medals. And you just said, this is great. And I can race, wait for another day of mental battle. Why am I doing this kind of thing? Well, we've been working through the letter of 2 Timothy. And in that, as Kirk shared last week, that Paul has been mentoring Timothy. Mentoring Timothy for the ministry that he's already doing, but it's going to be taking on more. But in today's passage, we begin to discover Really, maybe the ultimate reason for Paul writing this second letter to Timothy. Paul's preparing to pass the baton. He has been running this race of ministry, and he's seeing the finish line, and he desires for Timothy to keep the ministry of the gospel and the kingdom of God moving forward. Let me read to you again our passage. It says to Timothy, But as for you, Timothy, you self-restraint in all things, Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And as if right here it stops. And now Paul begins to transition. He says, for I, he's talking about Paul, am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure will come. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there is reserved for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now he says again to Timothy. So he's talking about his own life. And now he says again to Timothy, make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cressus has gone to Galatia and Titus Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Take along Mark and bring with him with you, for he's useful to me for service. But I have sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring my overcoat, which I left in Troas with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coopersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself too, for he is vigorously opposing our teaching. Would you pray with me? Father, Thank you for your word as it speaks to our life. And this day, God, would you open our hearts. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, our Redeemer, we pray in your son's name. Amen. Paul wants to finish well. And he sees that the end is drawing near. And whether it's due to physical frailty or whether it's due to martyrdom, we know as we read through the history books that Paul was probably martyred in 64 AD by the Roman Emperor Nero. So his end at this point is very close. And again, Paul doesn't know if it's going to be just a natural death or martyr for his faith, but he can sense now the end is drawing near. And after a final admonition to Timothy in verse 5, says, as for you, use restraint in all things, endure hardship, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry, Paul begins now to reflect. And he uses this phrase, it says, For I am being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. Paul uses this term of a drink offering, which isn't something that we are very familiar with. But there's two possible interpretations that a drink offering can be. But both really lead in the same direction. One could be an Old Testament understanding that the priest would, when there's an offering of a lamb, they would take a quarter of a hen of wine for you at Sagewood, that's like half a gallon, okay? So you've got that. So a lot of wine, and he'd pour, they'd pour it out onto the offering as a part of the sacrifice. 
of giving up their own things. But Paul might also be thinking of this Roman Greek culture, the pagan culture, that would pour out wine out of their cup, the first part, as an offering to the gods or to the emperor. Again, a sacrifice of something that they had. Either way, Paul says that his life is being poured out as an offering. But for Paul, it wasn't just the end of his life. Because Paul uses this metaphor earlier, and he writes to the church in Philippi. He says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 17, verse 17, he says, um, But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from my faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. This is what Paul wants us to know. He made this decision to be a drink offering long before. He made this decision when he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. You know that story. It's written in Acts chapter 9. The bright light shone and Paul was knocked to the ground. He was, before this point, remember, he was Saul. It says in the beginning of chapter 9 of Acts, Saul still bringing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. It was Paul who was against Jesus, his church, his followers. Paul, with all that he had, was seeking to put an end to Christianity. And here on the road, this dramatic conversion happens, and he now becomes a follower of Jesus. It says that he spent time with the disciples there in Damascus, and after several days, it says he immediately began to preach in the synagogue that Jesus was the Son of God. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16. He says, For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul knew that there's nothing else that he could do. His life was being poured out. So here's our question for us. Is how do we finish well? Well, the first thing is you have to start the race in order to win. That might seem kind of silly, but... For Paul, that beginning happened on the road to Damascus. Paul's life changed. Or maybe we can say Paul's life was changed by what God did in that place. And when it was changed, Paul counted the cost. Of all people, Paul should know the cost because he was the very one who was leading the effort to stamp out Christianity. He was one who was ready to put Christians in jail and maybe towards martyrdom. And now he's saying, I will go with that same fate if that's what awaits me. Here's what Paul knew. He knew that our lives are already being poured out. I went deep into the theology on this. So you remember the soap opera days of our lives? Mm -hmm. That opening graphic with the hourglass and the sand pouring through it? I can't do the voice. Like the sand through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. Yeah, I know, I know. It's bad. I don't want to talk about soap operas here, but it is a good reminder. And the question I ask ourselves, what are you giving your life to? And does it give life? For Paul, his life had been being poured out of the gospel at all cost. And as the hourglass tells us, the sand in it, there really is a finite number of hours or grains of sand to live. So we can spend our life pouring our time into a career, into a hobby, into a sport, 
into something. There's a, a recent survey, a study that talked about the average person. Now, I don't know what the average person is, but this is what they say they spend, they spend their life in. 229,691 hours sleeping. Not now. This is not one of those hours. Okay. <laughs> 90,360 hours working, 80,486 hours watching television, 37,935 hours driving, probably various by where you live, 32,098 hours eating, some of us more than others, 28,200 hours online, and I like this last one, 12,896 hours cleaning. Wait, that's the women. Men, only 6,000 hours, guys. So maybe less, okay? But the point is, we only have so many hours in our lives. And it might behoove us to think about what we're going to do with those hours and where we're going to spend them. Oswald Chambers, in his devotional, My Utmost for Its Highest, says this. Are you ready to be poured out as an offering? Is it an act of your will, not your emotions? Tell God you're ready to be offered as a sacrifice for him. Then accept the consequences as they come without any complaints in spite of what God may send your way. Paul knew that he was ready to be poured out with no regrets. He says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. There's no greater joy for Paul than to give his life in service of the gospel. Now, he realized now that the end was drawing near. When he uses this phrase, the time for my departure is drawing near, it's kind of a common euphemism during the time that meant to break camp. He's pulling up the tent stakes. You might say today, if this was you, you might say, I'm cashing in my chips. I'm dancing the last dance. I'm, I'm going I'm to be pushing up daisies. You know, it's funny, when I'm typing this on my computer, some of us have grammar tech on your computer, and all of a sudden a little bubble drops up and just says, dead. So, <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> I'm just going to be dead, okay, that's way. But Paul says that I'm, I'm breaking camp, I'm getting ready. Paul has no regrets. So he started the race, and second to finish well, you have to compete to the end. Paul uses these three phrases. He says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. You know, I shared before that Kathy and I love watching the Olympics, and, and in the Summer Olympics, there's always some marquee events, and one of them is the, the men's 4x100 relay. It's always the second to last day of the track and field events. And, you know, your country gets your four fastest runners and puts them together, and they're going to win this race. But they need to do one other thing. They can't just be fast. They need to be able to pass the baton well. Some countries actually select their team a year in advance, and they practice the baton pass for a year. Not the United States. Nope, nope. We just pick four fast people and give them a baton, and soon they can just outrun everyone. Well, in the past 111 years, the U.S. men's team has run the 4x100 41 times in the Olympics and the World Championships. And in that, they have taken first or second 27 times. The other 13 times, they were disqualified because they dropped the baton or they're outside the zone. They, did, they messed up 
You can have the fastest runners in the world, but if they can't do it, they can't do it. And so this last Olympics, out of the four entered for the United States, the United States took one, two, and three in the 100-meter dash. But in the Olympics, they took second because they blew the handoff on the last leg. Paul knows that if he doesn't pass the baton well, it's as if his gospel ministry wasn't successful. It's as if he were a failure. Now, he knows, he knows that, that God is greater than he is, but it's so important for him that the baton gets passed so the ministry continues. Paul says he's run the race with honor. He says he's finished the race. So what's it look like to finish the race and to finish it well? Well, I want to share a little video of one of my high school kids. In nope, go for it. That's Christian. He's in front. Blonde hair. He's got this race won. First, I want you to know, I got permission from Christian to show that video, okay? I asked him. And, and I love in our call to worship today from Isaiah chapter 40 that Isaiah says that even though young men will fall and stumble, they shall rise like wings of eagles. I love that Christian got up. He took second. If you'd never seen that race, just, I took second. It was amazing. But Paul wants us to finish the race. And he knows that many of us are going to face obstacles in our lives. Sometimes they're going to be from our own doing. Sometimes they're going to be things that just happen to us. But Paul never stopped. We read in Acts chapter 28 that Paul was imprisoned in Rome for two years. That he was chained in a rented house to a Roman guard. What did he do? It says he welcomed every day anyone into the home who would come and talk and listen about the gospel. If you read the book of Philippians in the fourth chapter, it would seem to say those in um, Caesar's household greet you, which makes us realize that even the Roman guards who were chained to Paul came to know who Christ was. Paul kept going, no matter what was coming his way. So he says, I have kept the faith. He's remained true to his calling, proclaiming Christ as Lord. Sometimes we might think that we have been eliminated from this work of ministry. It's just for the professionals. It's just for those who have gone to school. You don't know what's happened in my life. God couldn't use me. No mistake, no failure, nothing can keep us from being used of God. All we need to do is get into the race and finish well. Steve Ferrer in his book, Finishing Strong, says this. It doesn't matter if you've had a great start in the Christian life or a rough one. It doesn't matter if you've stumbled time and again or even fallen flat on your face. 
What matters most of all and all important race of life is for you to finish. I'm sure if Christian in his hurdling race had just laid on the ground and just stayed there and let everyone finish, no one would have said anything. Said, wow, you really ran out of gas. That's too bad. But he doesn't stay on the ground. He gets up and goes. And that's what Paul says to us. Let God lift you up. No matter what's happening in your life, get back into the race. And when you finish well, that there is a crown of righteousness awaiting us. The great thing is the crown of righteousness that Paul's talking about isn't just for the first place finishers. It's for every person who has put their trust in Christ and long for his appearing. So how to finish well? You have to start the race in order to win. You have to compete until the end. And you can't do it on your own. Uh, I was going to show you another track video, but once enough. But there's, a, there's an incredible video about uh, Kenneth Redmond, who ran for the British Columbia and fell down in the midst of the 400 meter. He tore his hamstring and couldn't finish in the Olympics. He was favored to win. But his father comes onto the track and picks him up and walks with him to the finish line. We need to have people with us. Paul was not a one-man show. He trained up leaders across the land, and all of them started with him. Crescent, Titus, Tychicus, Carpus, Luke, Mark, they speak loudly to what Kirk talked about last week, about mentoring others in the faith, mentoring others that they might walk with us, that we might walk with them, that we run in the race together. Remember, I started this sermon with the ridiculous story about my running that first race, where I realized that, that running, even though sometimes it can feel so solitary, running on cross-country is really a team event. And it's those other runners who run with you. We need to have people who are there in our lives encouraging us. And we need to be in the lives of others encouraging them. So here's my question for us. Who is on your team? Who's running with you? And who are you running this race of faith with? That's one of the reasons we talk so much about being in a small group. The Christian life was never meant to be a solitary event. God gave us the greatest gift, which is the church, the body of believers, to equip us, to encourage us as we live out this life of faith. The baton of faith is passed from one generation to the next by faithful participants in the gospel. Don't be counted out. Don't let your past dictate what you think God can do in the future. It's never too late to finish well and to clear that final hurdle. So get in the race. Be used by God in the work of the gospel. Compete until the end. You're never eliminated and don't do it on your own be part of a team finish well and glory in the crown of righteousness that awaits the believer would you pray with me father thank you for your call upon our lives to join you in this work of the gospel and thank you father that has nothing to do with our qualifications but it has to do with you your grace and your calling your equipping your empowering lord Sometimes we think we've been eliminated because of stuff that's happened in our lives. But God, thank you that you renew us every day. And you invite us to yourself. So Lord, help us to finish well. We pray in your son's name. Amen.